It's so cheap. It's so small. You X out the cash of Coinbase and it has the same market cap as Dogecoin. It's got a lower market cap than Cardano. It's half the market cap of XRP once you exclude the cash. Those are ridiculous comparisons. This is the most important company in crypto and it's trading on par with Dogecoin. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have some super exciting news today, actually. We have a new sponsor, the Atom Accelerator. They are aiming to push the hub forward through various grant opportunities uh, to establish Atom as the hub and the foundation of the interchain. Cosmos is an ecosystem we're super, super excited about over the rest of 2023. So if you're looking to contribute to actually building out that ecosystem, check out the link in the show notes. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities for grants and governance, BD, replicated security, public goods, research, and much more. So definitely check them out. Uh, today, though, is May 15th as of the time of recording, and we have a great interview with Matt and Ryan from Bitwise. But before we get into the interview, we are joined, as always, by two members of the BlockWorks research team to discuss the latest market happenings. Thanks for coming on, Ren and Zero X Pibbles. Ren, I can kick it over to you for your hot seat or cool throne. Yeah, sure. I have Ethereum in our hot seat today. So obviously a lot happened last Thursday and Friday. Starting off on Thursday afternoon, Ethereum failed to finalize for three epochs. And then a similar thing happened again on Friday afternoon where Ethereum failed to finalize for eight epochs. What happened was that two consensus clients, Prism and TechGroup, both failed. Um, the TLDR is that they had to process older attestations that were coming in from nodes that didn't have the latest block info. And then they also had to process the newer attestations that were coming in. And basically the clients couldn't keep up. There was kind of like a resource overload and the clients failed. As a result of that, on Friday afternoon for roughly eight blocks or so, Ethereum didn't finalize at its worst, probably only 20-25% of validators were attesting to a certain given epoch. Um, and it was the first time that the inactivity leak, which is a special term and a special sort of like thing that kicks in the face once Ethereum fails to finalize after four epochs kicked in. And once this inactivity leak kicks in, what happens is that validators that are offline and not attesting the blocks start slowly losing their stake thief. And that's kind of the mechanism by which over time, hopefully, the network as a whole can reach super majority attestations to finalize an epoch again. Um, there's obviously a whole like philosophical debate about whether Ethereum went down or not, sort of prioritizing liveness over safety. Uh, at what point would you consider Ethereum as down? And I would love to have that debate you guys yeah yeah that's a great point ren and you know personally to me it feels like you can't really call something down if transactions are still being processed at the end of the day um but like there is that interesting point though you know when things aren't finalized you are susceptible to, to reorgs at which and if that happened then your transaction essentially gets forked out uh, for being in the canonical chain so there is this like interesting thing of how you view it, right? Like if my transaction gets forked out and doesn't get processed, like the chain technically wasn't operating for me. Um, but I think you have to view view liveness in the sense of the entire chain as a whole. Uh, and so because of that, I, you know, I don't really view this as downtime for Ethereum. I more so view it as a couple of things. One is like a wake up call, like, okay, we're still building this revolutionary tech, but it is not built or completed by any stretch of the margin. You know, you, you 
can you know, kind of look at the transition to proof of stake and you know the activation of withdrawals as further evidence of that. But um, the other thing here is the resilience of Ethereum. You know, we built out a multi-client system specifically for this reason. Um, and this having multiple clients is exactly why the chain was able to continue working. So I think that's a really important thing to to remember. And you know, this is this exact issue would have taken down other chains. Ethereum is the only major blockchain that has multiple clients. Um, you know, Solana is kind of building out in that direction with the inclusion of Firedancer, but that's a bit more uh, of an upgrade rather than a client diversity mechanism. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's important to really take take this moment to be like, okay, we're still building and what we've built is actually quite resilient. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, Dan. And I think another thing worth pointing out is just how it's a wake up call a bit that staking isn't a risk-free yield. Like, yes, validators, I think Ren, you tweeted the other day that some validators got slashed 0.000007% of their stake or something incredibly small. But I think it's worth paying attention to and actually understanding what went on because I think a lot of people think about the staking yield as like a risk-free rate and it's not quite exactly that. Um, but yeah, again, this is just a testament to the client diversity. I think it's honestly more of a philosophical question in terms of whether you prioritize safety over liveness or, or vice versa. And I think you could talk about it all day and there's probably people out there, actually there definitely are people out there much smarter than us who have a lot more nuanced angle on the on the matter. So I'll just stick to the importance of client diversity on this one. Yeah, I think it's a good flag that makes sure that LSD providers are actually building out insurance funds for situations like this. And this is also a really good flag because you have all these uh, distributed validator companies coming out, such as like Obol and EtherFi. So it's a good thing this happens now rather than later when there is a ton more stuff built out that's running on this. Yeah, Ryan, what's your take? Would you consider this like a what, downtime for Ethereum? I, I wouldn't consider it as down because at the end of the day, for the end user, assuming I didn't read uh, CT, I wouldn't have realized that Ethereum was failing to come to consensus. You know, I would have still been able to submit my transactions. These would have been included into blocks perfectly fine and... I wouldn't have known any better. So I wouldn't have said Ethereum is down. And to be honest, like for the average user like us, if you're just transacting on Ethereum, it's not it's not like you're going, oh, okay, but is my transaction really finalized, you know? And at the end of the day, it's a lot of these sort of like interoperability, like crossing communication, bridge protocols, where you really need that finality and you can only sort of guarantee that transaction went through after 13 minutes or so, right? And then after that, the L2 can, for example, mint whatever token you locked into an L1 smart contract. That's definitely where it's important. But for the user, I'll say Ethereum didn't go down. It's sure, like it's underperforming, especially I think it begs the question if in the future we live in a much more multi-chain world or like a cross-chain world, what happens when something similar happens? But I wouldn't say it went down. And I think another important point about this is that this consensus mechanism in terms of like Gasper exists for a reason, right? I know there's been discussions in the past about like single start finality and what we can do to sort of achieve that. But now after this, you may think that perhaps single start finality isn't that good, right? Because if the network fails to come to consensus in a single start, then essentially the network as a whole has lost its liveness. And is that something you really want? Or is the fact that we promote liveness over safety a really good thing actually because even when something like this happens it gives validators a chance 
to basically catch up to uh, testing the newer blocks and kind of quote unquote fixing the chain while the chain on the front end still appears to be working as normal. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, Ren. And and even one step further, like I think the idea of prioritizing liveness over safety for Ethereum makes a ton of sense. It's a general purpose blockchain with a series of different applications and even sectors at this point built out on top of it. Um, and when a chain goes down, that is horrendous for DeFi, right? The token is still tokens are still trading on centralized exchanges or on other venues or even on other chains. And when the chain comes back online, those prices are like rapidly arved uh, in DeFi, which essentially just leads to mass liquidations. So if you have the largest DeFi ecosystem, you really can't go down. That's a non-option. But, you know, some like the Cosmos ecosystem uses Tendermint consensus, which does prioritize safety over liveness. So the opposite of Ethereum. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? You know, broadly, this is still very immature tech and we're still working on building that out. Um, so the ability for one third of the validator set to kind of say, hey, we need to halt the chain, pause something, make it some updates, and then we can kind of think about restarting generally seems like a decent idea, especially when it's an app chain and it only, it's built to serve one purpose, like Osmosis, for example. If there's an issue with like the AMM curves that they're using, we're just making something up here, but in that example, if there's an issue, then exactly what I just mentioned can happen. The validators can halt the chain. Um, and they can push a fix and then restart the chain. So like having that more specific control um, seems like a good kind of build for an app chain. But again, for a general purpose chain, I just think the liveness is such a major piece of the puzzle uh, when you have ecosystems built on top of you like that. Yeah, for sure. Sean, I agree with everything you said there too, Dan. Uh, Pibbles, who you got in the hot seat or cold throne this week? I've got the hot seat for Richard Hart and Pulse Chain quite possibly the lowest IQ thing I've ever seen happen on the blockchain. Um, so Richard Hart's the founder of Hex. He raised like 11 to $12 billion in a uh, sacrifice round for um, Pulse Chain, which is an Ethereum fork. Uh, it has a $135 trillion circulating supply right now, and people were able to sacrifice money to it and get Pulse on a price of like 0. 0.0001. So right now it's allegedly like a $13.5 billion market cap token. But the issue is there's no bridge. So everything is actually worth zero. He copied, he took a snapshot and copied everyone's Ethereum's tokens over to Pulse Chain. And this actually went live last Friday night. So like he essentially minted like $90 billion of stable coins out of thin air. And there were probably like a bunch of people who just have no idea that it's fake. Like I'm sure people Friday night, like swapped their pulse for a couple million in USDC and then like called their boss the next day. And they're like, I quit. Like there's so many people who just genuinely have no idea. So like, there's no bridge live. We don't know when the bridge is happening. And it, it's just like the funniest Ponzi scheme of all time. What's the stated intent of Pulse Chain? Not, not what it actually does or what it is today, but like, what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a fair and decentralized start. And that you're against like censorship. And you know, you're all about like open blockchain which uh, is pretty ironic because Richard Hart probably owns like 95% of the supply. Oh, and also the um, the people who created Zen, 
that thing that spiked Ethereum gas really bad towards the beginning of the year. So you could like, you can mint Zen for free, but you had to pay gas and then you'll get your Zen in like a year or something. They launched on Pulse Chain and Pulse Chain gas went up to like, I want to say like 50,000 Pulse per transaction. So they clogged the gas, which made like, I think like 500 million in Pulse has been burnt in like three days. But the Zen team also did that on Bitcoin with BRC20s. So they launched like Zen ordinals over there. So they're spiking Bitcoin fees too. They're kind of just like really infiltrating like every blockchain right now. This proof of gas concept is like the strangest thing ever. And uh, yeah, wow. Not, no surprise it's on. It's kind of haunted every low gas environment. So it's interesting to see it finally come to Bitcoin. Um, but but. You're blowing my mind with this pulse chain facts. Yeah. Did I hear 12 billion raised, right? Like like with a B, 12 billion dollars. Yeah, allegedly. That is just mind blowing. I Yeah. When you started with lowest IQ thing you've ever seen in crypto, I, I think I might agree. 12 billion dollars is an absurd amount of money. I'm, I'm not too surprised that uh, intellect of people in crypto anymore after Ben.Eth got $7 million of ETH. I mean, that's like the most... Obvious, you're not gonna get that money back thing like rug of all time and people sent him so much even it wasn't like a million people like sending him like a hundred two hundred dollars and there were people sending him like one eve three like it was ridiculous what was the promise on sending him eve i saw that but didn't dive in i think it was just like a pre-sale for like a unlaunched token because he launched the ben token and now he's gonna launch another token called psyops i mean named psyops like really <laughs> but yeah I think that's the premise it's basically like a pre-sale yeah I then saw BitBoy tweeting about the Ben token we gotta uh, we gotta get this under control uh, but moving on to the, the cool thrones this week I'm actually gonna throw Lido in there the largest liquid staking provider at about 74% of liquid staking market share and about 30% of total staked ETH market share uh, has just launched their V2 as of a couple hours ago today on March 15th so uh, exciting to see that kind of the next chapter for Lido. Obviously, they're a very integral part of DeFi. Um, and in the first few hours since withdrawals have been live, we haven't really seen any major players come through yet. Uh, it's been about 300 ETH, staked ETH withdrawn or requested to be withdrawn at least. Um, but interestingly, the protocol kind of built, has built up a, a backlog of ETH that it could use to be like a buffer to process withdrawals. And this is kind of in accordance with uh, the the details of you know how this process is going to work, right? So they keep this buffer amount so they can kind of um, process withdrawals without making users wait through the withdrawal queue. Uh, so they have about 402,000 ETH sitting there in this buffer account. And another interesting piece on this is Celsius, the now defunct uh, you know crypto yield CFI lending platform, has about 420,000 staked ETH that will presumably be unwound to kind of cover their their losses that they incurred and uh, potentially repay some of the creditors that were involved in that incident uh, just a couple months ago back in 2022. And so we don't really know for sure that will be unwound. You know, the pegs, staked ETH peg is trading nearly at one-to-one at this point. Um, so, you know, you could theorize that maybe they would have just been market selling that if that's the case, but... Uh, definitely an account to keep their eyes to, to keep your eyes on, um, and we'll link that account in the show notes if uh, the funds have not been withdrawn by the time this episode airs. But nonetheless, 
uh, I do think it's a net positive to see Lido maturing in this sense and enabling withdrawal. So um, it, of the major protocols or liquid staking protocols, we now have Lido, Coinbase, and Rocket Pool, which are the top three with active withdrawals, uh, which kind of leaves Frax in the, the last piece of that upper echelon tier bracket in terms of liquid staking providers to enable withdrawals. Um, haven't really seen much from the team on what that process will look like. Uh, my only hope is that it does have the ability to force with validators to withdraw. I know we've kind of talked at that, talked about the importance of that before, but yeah, uh, ultimately, I think protocols need to be kind of prioritizing the liquid staking token holder uh, a little more than the validator. But uh, nonetheless, I'm curious at everyone's takes here. Do we see Lido remain dominant as the largest liquid staking token provider? I would say yes, just because the network effects they've they've already you know uh, created. Like I think that's going to be really really hard to overcome. They've got a massive treasury. I don't know how they actually diversify that treasury as most of its LDO tokens, but you got to think with that high of a market cap, you could you know you could probably sell a little bit of those and keep yourself going for the foreseeable future. So I definitely pick Lido to not maintain its percentage market share over state ETH because obviously it's harder to do that with the vast amount of ETH they already have. I think that'll continue to downtrend, but I think they will maintain uh, you know, number one status in the LST provider space going forward. Um, honestly, I would put myself on the hot seat for this. Like, I totally thought a lot of people would withdraw um, through Lido and go to other LST providers. Maybe it's too early to tell. You know, It's only been a few hours as of this recording, but yeah, very surprised that there's not more people looking to switch providers considering like people who staked with them in the very beginning are definitely OGs. Um, so you'd think maybe like the the ethos of decentralization and supporting maybe more minority clients or, um, you know, trying to make that market share get a little bit more evened out or even some people taking profits. Like who, who knows what the reason would be? But yeah, I was just dead wrong on that. I think another interesting point about Lido uh, V2 being enabled was Lido's a protocol where you really, really can't screw up like this upgrade and like the associated code with it. You know, like if you screw up something here, you probably decimate a good half of like DeFi on Ethereum and other like blockchains or L2s. And so because of that, Lido went through, if I'm not wrong, nine different audits. And each one of those nine audits found something that the previous auditor didn't find, which I don't know if it's comforting or horrifying, but it kind of just shows like what is ever truly enough, you know, to guarantee like how secure a smart contract is. If after like eight auditors have gone through it, and I would presume Lido chose like pretty top tier auditors, not like the auditors like Certic. Um, and it really makes you wonder like if by the time they got to the ninth one, like they still found something in there. I I, I didn't look through like all of the auditing reports and how big like the issues that they had to fix were. But it just kind of makes you wonder how much out there is like potentially like exploitable or if we can never like get it truly right, you know, because a lot of these conversations about smart contracts, immutability is that eventually we'll get to a point where we will know like all of the exploits that exist. We're going to have literal like perfect smart contracts that are never ever like exploitable regardless of whatever attack vector there are. But I'm not sure how much I believe that. I'm definitely not like a software developer by any chance, so probably not the best person to speak of that, but this was an interesting thought. Shots fired, Ren. I heard that. Uh, but no, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, I Like you mentioned, I hope the severity of each uh, 
you know, audit decreased, right? But uh, hard to say. And, uh, you know, I tend to think that a lot of people uh, had this idea that Lido had been, uh, state, Lido State Deeth had been the safest because it's been so battle tested. It's had all this um, market cap behind it, making it the most attractive place for exploiters to be looking. And then, yeah, you add some new contracts to the protocol and you kind of start over. Like that's, you're back to ground zero because there's a whole new host of contracts that can be exploited, potentially be exploited. So I think they kind of really took the safety first approach there. So it is good to see that uh, thought process. Yep, strong agree. Um, I guess that's a good time to hop into my cool throne. I'm sure everyone's seen by now that Tether revealed their uh, Q1 surplus of $1.5 billion of profit, and now the total surplus in relation to outstanding supply is $2.5 billion. Um, they, their market cap has grown to nearly $83 billion since the USDC DPEG, with USDC's market cap trailing closer to $30 billion from a high of, I'm not even looking at it right now, but I'm sure like $50 billion at one point. So considerable decline in USDC market cap. Pretty unfortunate that that's kind of the result and that's where we're at. You know, you'd rather see a U.S. domiciled entity uh, maintain that market share. But nonetheless, the interesting news of all this is they bought 52,000 Bitcoin with some of their uh, interest income from the United States government. So the government is essentially (laughs) paying them to buy their debt and they're using the proceeds to buy Bitcoin, which is super wild to me if you really zoom out and think about it. Um, but yeah, just to put it in additional perspective, that's about a third of a little over a third, actually, of how much Bitcoin MicroStrategy owns. So, I mean, if if interest rates stay where they are, uh, there's a good chance by the end of the year, Tether is actually the, the one of the largest Bitcoin holders. So um, very, very interesting. Not sure if I think this is a good or a bad thing. I have PTSD from just everything we've experienced over the last year and a half. So I kind of hate for a whale to be gobbling up that much, especially a, a, a bit of a black box to some degree as Tether has been historically, even though it's getting a lot better. Um, so I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts, good or bad. No more black boxes, please, for the sake of the industry. Maybe they're uh, buddying up with the U.S. government if they're like kind of being the ex-liquidity for all that Bitcoin. So maybe they're buying themselves some immunity there, which um, might help them beat out Circle in the long run. So I don't know. It's some weird stuff. On the note of the black box, though, this is what I believe to be the first uh, attestation report that was done by BDO, uh, which is the fifth largest accounting firm. That's not like a, you know, sketchy, you know, one person shop in the Cayman Islands. Like this is an actual company and it is their Italian arm. So it's BDO Italia that completed this. I have no idea uh the quality of that specific arm of BDO. But again, given that it's a branch of uh the larger company, I'm assuming it's kind of held to the same standard. Uh so I th- I do think that's pretty interesting that they've kind of taken that step to say, hey, okay, you know, circle kind of forced our hand here. We got to open up the playbook a little bit. This is what we're working with. So uh, I do think broadly it is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think another interesting point about this attestation report was that gold was also purchased alongside BTC. So obviously, as everyone knows, the U.S. dropped the gold standard in 1933, I think. And then like eventually everything relating to the gold standard was phased out by 1973. And Tether, I think buying gold alongside BTC is like half symbolic, but also half super interesting you know because now we've reached a stage especially post-covid where the u.s government has essentially printed three trillion dollars out of thin air i think people are realizing that like that's kind of bullshit for lack of a better term and 
I don't know, maybe Tether brings back like some form of gold standard or at least starts that like ideological thought movement that maybe gold standard was like the better thing for fiat. Yeah, I, I agree, Ren. I, I do see that angle. I think Pibbles' take was pretty interesting too in terms of like kind of being a counterparty over an OTC deal for that seized Bitcoin. That's that's a really interesting take I haven't heard. I guess it just kind of makes me nervous like we like we're seeing in real time fractional reserve banking doesn't like you know work too well when people want their money back <laughs> and the fact that they're holding these liquid assets like if there ever is a crunch and everyone's running for the door and then you know they gotta liquidate you know hundreds of thousands of bitcoin gold like i don't know i just it seems like a scary outcome that you know it seems somewhat inevitable but i guess we'll just kind of wait and see and cross our fingers what's interesting is so with that gold purchase, I just looked and it looks like Tether has a uh, a tokenized gold and it's, uh, I think it's 500 mils, the market cap just about. And then I think Paxos has one too. Yeah, no, that's that's a great flag, Pibbles. But, you know, before we hop to our jam session with the fellows from Bitwise, I do want to give one more shout out to the Atom Accelerator. Uh, they're really a mission-driven group that's focused on catalyzing actual growth within the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, and there's really never been a better time to build uh, on Atom or using Cosmosm or anything in between, right? If we think about what's happened over there recently, you know, replicated security has gone live. Neutron is actively using it and making blocks from it, which is an incredible feat. Um, and we're already seeing builders come to the ecosystem as well, right? Lido, Astroport, Gitcoin, uh, Mars, Osmosis, Apollo. We're already seeing these names. Uh, kind of come over and say, hey, we're, we're going to build over here. And the just the ability to come and increase the activity that's happening in the economic atom economic zone is super exciting. So if you're a builder or a researcher or anybody super interested in the space that thinks that they can add value, be sure to check out the Atom Accelerator's homepage. We have the website linked in the show notes. And if they have the ability to provide grants to actually get these projects moving. So if you're excited about building and are looking for a new home, then definitely check out uh, the Interchain. All right, everyone. Today, we are joined by Matt and Ryan from Bitwise. Super excited about this one. We actually did an episode exactly six months ago as of recording today, May 11th. So excited to bring them back on. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. We're, we're excited to be back. Yeah, happy happy to do it again. Yeah, so I love getting your guys' perspective just because Dan said while we were off air, you guys kind of sit on the fence between crypto native and institution. So getting your guys' perspective is always a real treat. Um, what are you guys seeing in the institutional space? Like, is there a lot of interest? Like, are people starting to think, you know, maybe we're at the tail end of the bear market? Just what's the general sentiment uh, after all these events we've been through through the past year? Yeah, I'll, I'll start, Ryan, you could build. I've just been on the road for a couple of weeks talking to family offices and institutions. And I would say two things. One, they are starting to exit the bear market mentality. So the mood is decidedly more engaged, more excited, more positive than it was even two months ago, right? Uh, even though the market has been trading sideways for a while, they've woken up to the fact that it's the best performing asset class in the world. And so they're thinking about how to get uh, allocations to it. You know, one, one particular point uh, that I've been hearing a lot is uh, sort of the family office and institution side thinking about just a very small allocation, just putting their toe in the water, getting 1% allocation to Bitcoin and ETH uh, specifically has been the story that's been emerging. So I, I feel pretty positive. They're not gung-ho. They're worried about regulation. They're worried about all the things that keep the four of us up at night, I'm sure. 
Uh, but they are starting to think about putting their toe in the water. And I think you're, you're going to start to see that in asset flows over the next few months. Yeah. I, I had an interesting call with the family office, uh, yesterday and I found I, what I found like most interesting about that is they're really focusing on what the real use cases for crypto are. So, you know, a lot of the meme coin mania we've seen this past week has, has, I think brought some emotions of like, okay, we are you know, a year into the this bear market, you know, or where we should be kind of like rotating into more use cases and kind of a different, uh, different kind of momentum behind the market than we had a year or two years ago. And yet we're still kind of finding the same things pop up, albeit it's a little bit different. Obviously we have, you know, uh, BRC twenties instead of, you know, just the ERC twenties and we have L2s today, which we didn't have really back then. But yeah, I think it's, I think we're starting to, you know, need to find a space where we're having real use cases and real traction beyond, you know, speculation and, and, it's good that they're focusing on that uh, versus trying to learn, you know, what is Bitcoin, what is Ethereum. So I think that that moved the needle quite a bit in the past year or two. But yeah, definitely more focus on the, you know, real world use cases and adoption of crypto. Yeah, that's there's lots to unpack there. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Matt, was they're actually considering that 1% allocation, which is pretty exciting because I feel like in the, the last bull market, everybody saw those charts that were getting tossed around of like, oh, look at this traditional portfolio and here's how much better it performed with that 1%, 5% allocation into crypto. Uh, so now that like the dust has kind of settled, it's like, okay, now let's actually consider if that's a realistic possibility. So that's super intriguing to hear. Um, and then, you know, further to that, like, are, are they still only looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum as these realistic investments or is are they like considering things maybe even just like one step further on the risk curve? Well, I think for them, ETH is one step further on the risk curve. So we should start there, right? Uh, if you back up, it used to be Bitcoin only. And now I would say there's actually more interest in ETH uh, than there is even in Bitcoin from many of the, the institutions that we talk to. Um, I don't think many of them are yet ready to move beyond that a little bit further down, say into DeFi protocols or, or into, into layer twos. Um, I think layer twos are probably just around the corner. People are starting to talk about that, but the big change has been from Bitcoin to Bitcoin and ETH. I know we all live like a few years ahead of where the institutional market is. So that's a tired story for us, uh, but it's a brand new story for many of these folks and they're excited about those real world use cases. So I really think that's, uh, that's the thing. The other big shift that we've seen actually, uh, is institutions who used to allocate to venture capital within the crypto market, starting to think about either crypto hedge funds, there's a rising interest in crypto hedge funds, um, or direct exposure. So that's a, that's a similar movement down the risk curve from VC to hedge fund or direct exposure. Um, that's, that's probably a really powerful theme right now. You don't hear much about crypto VC and three years ago, that was, that was all the rage. Yeah. Yeah. That is exciting to see too. Definitely a change in perspective about how they're kind of thinking about the market, which is exciting to see. Uh, but the other thing you mentioned was, you know, they're kind of getting out of that bear market mentality. I'll, 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 I want to hear both of your opinions on this. Maybe I'll throw it to Ryan to you first. Like, do you think that now is the time to truly be thinking like, all right, like is the light at the end of the, uh, at the end of the tunnel is now the time that it's like time to start thinking about being risk on again? Yeah. I think that investors definitely are looking at this as an opportunity to allocate. Right. I mean, they've missed the point at least so far in this bear market to allocate to Bitcoin under 20, you know, ETH down in the low thousands. And so. Uh, it, it makes sense that this kind of like, you know, FOMO effect plays out as we see a little bit of a surge in, in the prices, you know, Bitcoin and crypto is the best performing asset class of Q1. So undoubtedly they're getting a lot of questions from clients about, you know, 
the the outlook for the market in in general right how how are equities performing right how are we allocated and so to not have an allocation to crypto i think is you know once again kind of becoming a business risk for them as financial advisors as institutional investors so I do think it's a good time, you know, for them to allocate. You don't want to see it pop another 20, 30, 40% and still not have the, the appropriate allocation. But I also think there's a really big, you know, macro headwind uh, out there for all risk assets. And crypto definitely fits kind of the, the bill of a risk asset that has some additional regulatory risk beyond, you know, traditional equities. So I do think it's a good time to allocate. I think, you know, we could see, you know, some selling off if the macro uh, picture, you know, tur turns for the worse. But yeah, I think it's coming out of the darkness a little bit to to see. Okay, look, all all risk assets uh, are subject to macro headwinds, but what what could benefit from you know the the tailwinds the best? And I think crypto really sits on top of that list. And I, I would just I would just build on that by saying you have to allocate when it stinks, you have to allocate when it hurts, you have to allocate when it's ugly. If you wait for us to get regulatory clarity and for the uh, the macro uncertainty to vanish and for the real world use cases to have a billion users, you'll definitely have missed, right? The best times to allocate in crypto history have been 2018 at the end of 2014. Uh, and so, you know, one message that we're telling institutional investors is it's 1% of your portfolio. Like what's the worst that could happen? You'll be down 1%. You're down 1% on the S and P 500 today. Uh, you know, so it's 1% of your portfolio. You have to buy when it's challenging and you can, you can succeed by having a little bit more information about the market than what the most of the market sees. You can see, succeed by looking abroad and seeing regulatory progress. Even as we see regulatory challenges in the U S you can succeed by realizing the sort of technological revolution taking place with layer twos and the Ethereum blockchain when the market isn't focused on that, but it's always going to be painful when you're buying at the right time. It's, it's never easy and that's true right now. Definitely a fair point, even tough for, for us, you know, allocating in the space in our own PAs. It's like, damn, this is a little bit scary here. <laughs> uh, but doubling down on the point of, you know, institutions kind of going into ETH, I'm curious because a big event over the past couple of months was ETH uh, withdrawals, of course, with the Shanghai upgrade. Um, so is that a legitimate narrative that you hear? Like, are people feeling like, oh, wow, I can actually get yield and I can exit the system if I like to, like the loop is closed. Did that attract more institutional interest or is that kind of a nothing burger that people talk about? I think it's a bit of a nothing burger today. Uh, w one thing that I think a lot of institutional investors think about that us that are further down the rabbit hole don't really think about is the whole element of, you know, cussing assets. Like a lot of our investors want to hold their assets in cold storage and, and don't want to have exposure to smart contract risk uh, of you know, the likes of staking. And so, uh, while it removes the risk of your money, your capital being locked up indefinitely, I don't think it removes all of the risks of not holding assets in cold storage. And so until, you know, the regulated custodians, the Anchorage and the, and the Coinbase's of the world, uh, and even, you know, the Fidelities and, the, and those like, you know, older named institutions start offering the capabilities of, you know, allowing for staking, but, but somehow doing that in a way where cold storage is still and security is still the number one priority, I don't think we're going to really see that that big leap into, you know, staking. Yes, they understand that there is some yield, but they're also aware that that yield's paid out in the native token. So it still kind of carries the same price risk as, you know, just a, having additional allocation to ETH. And, and since we're still kind of working on, you know, buffing that allocation from one to two to 5%, I think that the, you know, the additional four to 6% yield doesn't really carry all that much 
um, weight and additional additional payoff, uh, you know, as a yeah. I would just toss out, I think the bigger impact of Shanghai is fundamental, which is that over time, you're going to see more asset uh, staked in the Ethereum ecosystem and therefore vanishing supply. So I, I think it's supportive of prices. And also for crypto savvy institutions, and those are out there, uh, it removed a risk, right? Where there was the sell wall narrative out there and people weren't sure whether that would happen or not. And so the fact that we got beyond that removes a risk but the average institutional investor that we're talking to they're still catching up with eip 1599 right that the sort of they're still realizing that there's a burn mechanism and that you can think about revenues and that you can model it out that way that's where they are maybe a year plus behind where the market is uh but for sure you know ethereum continuing to execute on its technical roadmap is good news and institutions get that and every time they do that, it builds confidence. Uh, but we don't hear a huge amount of demand for, you know, four percent yields. The institutions investing into crypto are are trying to ten x their money, um, just like the rest of us. And so those 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 yields are nice. They're added it, but they're not the big drive. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. Even talking to to people in this space that you know our analysts or just spend every day in uh, thinking about crypto, they take the same approach. It's like, okay, do I need the extra four or five percent? If I think Ethereum itself has, you know, that five to ten x upside over a few years, so uh, I, I definitely I think that resonates with a lot of listeners as well. And uh, taking this to the to the more boring side of the conversation that I just think has to be hit is the regulation front, right? So Coinbase kind of seems to be spearheading this uh, the battle, honestly, and fighting the good fight on on all of our behalves. I'm curious, like, what is your take on Coinbase being the ones to do this? Um, you know. Just a couple of days ago, I think Bloomberg bro broke the story that Jump and Jane Street are like kind of rolling back some of their crypto operations amidst this regulatory pressure. And, you know, we've already seen the impacts of the loss of their liquidity has kind of had. Um, so I'm curious, like, what's your picture on the regulation front? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll start. Maybe, Ryan, you can jump in. First of all, it's great that it's Coinbase that's fighting the fight. There is no better positioned company in the U.S. to fight that fight with the resources with the gravitas, with the clean regulatory record over time, uh, they are our champion on the front lines. And I think everyone in crypto is rooting for them, probably even their competitors. Uh, you know, our view is that what's most likely to occur from a regulatory perspective is sort of nothing for a period, right? A sort of standoff between a harsh regulatory climate, crypto pushing back and probably winning in the courts and the legislature trying to make progress on some aspect or another. So sort of a painful, volatile detente is my base case for regulation. They're right tails and left tails, right? On the positive side, crypto wins aggressively in court and uh, the, the legislature passes some version of crypto legislation. Any single crypto bill that gets through Congress this year would be positive for the crypto ecosystem. So that's one tail. The other tail is uh, crypto fails in court and regulators get to put their thumbs down and really pressure the market. Uh, or we see a continuation of this regime for multiple years. But my base case is like a painful, volatile detente. And, uh, and, and that's okay for crypto. That's all we need to continue in a multi-year bull market. We just need to clip the left tail of negative distributions uh, and we'll be fine. Yeah. And I, I would just add to that on the whole the whole Jane Street kind of jump crypto element of things. Uh, I think one thing that gets missed in that headline, if you if you kind of read between the lines, is that yes, they might be stepping back from crypto it, 
you know, in, in theory, but I think what really it means is they're being more selective around who their crypto partners are. And that I, I'm sure is a result of the fallout of, you know, kind of uh, working with any crypto partner out there, you know, from the FTXs to the, uh, to the lesser known parties that could end up having some regulatory action taken against them. And so, you know, as a way to hedge their regulatory exposure, they're likely going to be far more selective about who they're working with. But I don't think institutions like that will really fully step back from, you know, having exposure to the crypto market. It's a big part of their business that, you know, for, for Jump Crypto, obviously, uh, much larger than Jane Street. But I do think that, um, you know, we have a lot of people that come from Jane Street into crypto. And I think that's indicative of, uh, of you know, that organization as a whole kind of being very pro-crypto, kind of understanding the technological innovations behind crypto and what it can do for trading, what it can do for the movement of money, what it can do for, for capital formation. And so, uh, yeah, yes, they're, they're stepping back from who they're working with being more selective, but net net, that might be a positive. That might be that the, you know, the quality players and the quality actors out there, um, have, you know, an, a leg up on some of the, you know, worse actors or, or, uh, detractors from the space. Yeah, most definitely. Um, we also saw Coinbase's earnings come out last week. Uh, I think the expectations were a 45 cent loss per share, and it wound up being an 85 or 86 cent gain. Like that's a pretty big surprise. Not really sure how Wall Street missed that one. So, so by such a wide margin, to be honest. Um, but nonetheless, that's beside the point. Um, what do you guys think about Coinbase? What's the bull thesis? They've got Base launching. They got Coinbase Wallet. Obviously, more than 100 million users. We've talked about it a bit in the past, but. I'm curious if that uh, thesis has evolved at all over the past six months since we last talked. Yeah, I'll, there, there's so much to be excited about with Coinbase. And then, of course, there's this one giant exogenous negative risk. But let's start on the fun part. Uh, I thought it was the transformational quarter for, for Coinbase. I think it was one of the best quarters of a publicly traded company that I've ever seen. If you look at what they did, not only did they grow revenue aggressively quarter over quarter, but they did three or four things that really set them up, I think, to be a giant in the future. The first was dramatic cost cutting. They caught, cut expenses by 24%. And the most important thing in crypto, as you know, is just to stick around, right? To be there through every bull and bear market. Coinbase has done that since 2012. And I think by sort of getting religion on expenses, they've sort of guaranteed with their $5 billion balance sheet that they are going to be here for the next cycle as well. So that was really important. But that was just one piece. They also expanded internationally, paved the way to launch an international derivatives exchange, opened up multiple local markets. They launched BASE, which is an incredible uh, thing. They launched Coinbase Asset Management. They laid out a roadmap. I don't know if you've seen that slide of how they plan to sort of evolve over the next 10 years to really reframe how finance is done. That's one of the most ambitious roadmaps in the market. I always struggle with looking at Coinbase and it's a $16 billion company or whatever. It's a smallish mid cap company and it could be one of the most important financial institutions, you know, in the world in the next 10 years if crypto plays out the way we think uh, it will. And I think this quarter really set them up to sort of fill that role. And so I'm very excited the, the sword hanging over them, of course, is the negative regulatory outlook. Right. And so. I think you have a very distributed uh, range of outcomes for Coinbase. I think most of it is on the upside, but if they get a very negative regulatory result, massive fines, big restrictions on their business, that would be a negative. But I think it's one of the most attractive public equities on the market today. 
Yeah, I think Wall Street like largely misunderstands Coinbase's business model. To be totally honest, it it gets a lot of coverage alongside you know traditional uh, traditional brokerages or uh, you know even some of these like regional banks. You know sometimes kind of get get grouped in the same. Which obviously those have a lot of different risk profiles than what Coinbase has. But from everything from their exposure to you know the second largest stable coin, which currently is getting more and more profitable as yields rise on Treasuries, right? They I think they're uh, they're av- they have I was looking yesterday, like 80% of the reserves or something like that are allocated uh, in, into T-bills and, and treasury repos. And so I, I think there's just a huge portion of the market that thinks, hey, this is just a trading firm. All they do is kind of handle spot trading. And if volumes are down, then revenues are going to be down. And yes, that is obviously a big portion of their business. But they also, you know, this this derivatives opportunity, which I believe, you know, a lot of people think as it's more of just a regulatory play. But the reality is, is that the fall of FTX left this huge hole in the market, and there's a huge appetite for crypto derivatives uh, outside the U.S. And so, I do believe that uh, that's going to be an extremely profitable business for them, and it's more than just a regulatory play. And that's just you know a couple examples of how Wall Street and in you know uh, most institutional investors are kind of missing the mark on how they think about Coinbase as business. Yeah, I just add one thing: it's so cheap, it's so small. You x out the cash of Coinbase, and it has the same market cap as Dogecoin. It's got a lower market cap than Cardano. It's half the market cap of XRP once you exclude the cash. Those are ridiculous comparisons. This is the most important company in crypto, and it's trading on par with Dogecoin from a market cap perspective if you exclude out the cash. It has an incredibly ambitious roadmap. I think there are probably a lot of crypto native investors who own crypto assets, I would say, are short Coinbase, they, they have a, a, a lack of exposure to one of the most attractive investment opportunities in the crypto space on a um, market cap weighted basis. I would just encourage people to dwell on those facts for a minute when they think about where to put their next marginal dollar to work uh, in the market. That is a phenomenal comparison. It's something uh, I have not drawn those drawn those lines myself. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm that clip that clip that production. That's phenomenal. Um and another thing I find interesting is so I'm looking at their uh, shareholder letter here from Q1 and $240 million came from interest income of the $740 million in net revenue. And so that's some 30 some odd percent. And that seems to be like a huge business model for when we're in a bear market and rates trended higher and they had this kind of like counterweight to keep their revenues flowing. And that's what I think is exciting about base. I don't know this for sure, but you know, if they have that revenue share of a circle where any on-platform USDC, they collect a portion of that revenue. And so if they make base this like safe haven for USDC, if you would call it that, and like just promote the use of USDC on base, I'm very curious to see if that USDC counts towards their revenue share. So something I definitely have in mind with uh, kind of watching how Coinbase grows from here. But I'm curious if you guys have any like super exciting takes on how uh, base will be used by Coinbase. Yeah, I, I I think what's interesting about there's a couple of things interesting about base. One, you know, it's kind of the first instance we've seen a publicly traded company adopt L2s and really lean into L2s, and and Coinbase has continually leaned more and more into kind of this on-chain, you know, Web3 app store kind of approach to to exposure to crypto. And traditional investors want an equity wrapper. They want you know either an ETF or a traditional equities wrapper. And so this is the only L2 where you can have some kind of exposure in your portfolio for you know just traditional investors and they can't allocate to to optimism or arbitrum directly and so what can they allocate to is is base and i think that 
has a trickle down effect on you know the rest of the crypto ecosystem uh inherently because uh you know it just brings more and more attention to the power of layer twos it brings more developers uh into into layer twos you know coinbase has the resources to help onboard developers help establish partnerships for base kind of like polygon is you know really well capitalized in a really strong marketing engine i, I do foresee you know base kind of having the same kind of clout across traditional companies as we see polygon having today so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about base and the other thing about coinbase with with uh you know it's usdc exposures i was transferring some some usdc to coinbase the other day and it uh it kind of struck me as interesting that you they'll just take usdc it doesn't matter what chain you're sending it on like they just like hey send it from arbitrum to ethereum whatever it is like we'll handle the bridging we'll do we'll kind of like abstract away the stress that you feel maybe when you're sending ETH from your metamask to your to your coinbase wallet and you're you know worried that you're sending it from arbitrum to ethereum and you know you're gonna end up like it's gonna get lost in this black hole like they're, they're removing that um that user experience risk that that we see and i think just as as the proliferation of base continues it's going to help improve the user experience and so investors can get exposure to kind of to the crypto ecosystem on a variety of fronts with coinbase you have stable coins you have layer twos you have spot trading uh and you know staking and so i just think it's like a really interesting business model but yeah base is really exciting um loved loved that they rolled that out and i think it just shows that yes there's a big regulatory uh cloud hanging over their head but they're doubling down they're still pushing forward and that's what the best companies do uh, in dark times, right? And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited about it and think it's going to be a big, big piece of momentum for Coinbase as a company. So, I guess that begs the question of, you see the the Arbear drop, the token for Arbitrum came out, what, a couple months ago by now? Yet you see Optimism trading at, you know, two to three X lower valuation. So, do you think that that's kind of a mispricing in the market? I know some of Coinbase's sequence of revenue will be allocated to the OP collective to distribute for public goods funding. Um, not sure if you have any thoughts there. I just find it interesting that we have a centralized team of developers, you know, all working together, employed under the same company, building on the same L2. Like you got to think that there's quite a competitive advantage there versus a team of completely distributed developers trying to coordinate over a discord. So I guess what's your opinions on L2 valuations? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take this one. I think, I think there's a couple of things. One, optimism. You know, token airdrop came out at this point so long ago, and especially in the kind of the the timeline of crypto. And so I do think that uh, Arbitrum benefited a bit from being the second mover, which is kind of an interesting paradigm. But you know, everyone was so excited about optimism when the token airdrop came, and so naturally, what was the next move was to go try to you know increase your activity levels on Arbitrum so that you can you know you can qualify for a token airdrop. And I think that by being the second to the market from that front, they actually kind of drew more users and drew more activity on their platform, which you know likely is helping them with this this higher uh, market cap valuation. But um, ultimately, I do think that the market share from base to to OP is really really interesting. I I, I hope to see that model um, you know expand across across more L2s and and uh you know kind of the op stack so i do think optimism is is likely a bit undervalued as it relates to arbitrum but um you know optimism also has this kind of like growing gaming ecosystem like the the, the treasury ecosystem has been really really interesting uh there is still a lot of DeFi activity happening there so i do think there's a bit of a misprice happening i think it's more due to the the timing of the token airdrops between the two uh and kind of where momentum went from optimism into arbitrum but that'll get leveled out uh, over time 
as more and more users and more and more investors come into the ecosystem. Yeah, Sean, are you there? <laughs> I, uh, I'm i definitely bullish, bullish on optimism and, and both Arbitrum, honestly. I, I love both of those LTs. That's personally where I conduct a lot of my activity. Um, so I guess towards, you know, we saw the USDC DPEG at one point on that scary weekend a, a couple months ago. What was your guys' experience during that event? How did that affect institutional flows over, you know, the the preceding weeks? Um, do you feel fully confident in USDC? Do you think it's a bad thing that, you know, USDT's market cap is climb, climbing in the face of um, all the all the fallout from the event? Like, I just, how has that changed the institutional landscape and how you guys think about where to deploy capital? Yeah, I think, you know, we were monitoring that closely. We were in touch with a bunch of hedge funds, which were on one side of the trade and then switched to the other side of the trades. Could sort of see what was happening underneath the ecosystem. We at no time had real fundamental worries about how it would shake out in the end. My only concern was that it would damage the reputation. People wouldn't realize that it was a TradFi failure and not a, a crypto native failure. And that that turned out not to be the case. I think everyone has confidence in USDC, more confidence even today than they did back then because they've improved their collateral. Um, but yeah, I wish USDT wasn't gaining market share. Uh, you know, we've made 10 predictions at the the start of this year and we've been pretty good with most of them. Uh, we've nailed probably six or seven. A few are still up in the air, but one we predicted was USDC would flip USDT and and that uh, that has gone the other way. I don't think it's good for the market when you reward opacity. Uh, and, um, and that what's, that's what seems to be happening. People are like, Tether is safer because we couldn't see that they couldn't access their money. And that's a, that's terrible reasoning. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's just not perfect. I wish it would go the other way. I think it will over time. I still believe in that. I believe, you know, institutions will be a larger part of the market will want more regulated entities. Um, but so far I've been wrong. I don't know, Ryan, if you have a different take. Yeah, yeah, I think that that that's really true. You know, those were those were dark times, Sam. Definitely that uh, that Friday night will I think it'll take me a long time to forget about uh, how I was feeling in the uh, the aftermath of everything going on. And so um, I do think it caused some you know harm to the reputation of USDC. I think some undue harm, albeit like Matt said, you know, this wasn't a failure of USDC in a lot of ways. It was kind of a, a ripple effect of you know the Silicon Valley banking's horrible uh you know or, or or you know not so great uh risk management so i do think there's an element of you know yes spreading your capital uh across multiple banks as a stablecoin issuer probably makes a lot more sense that they probably were too concentrated in a single bank especially a regional bank so uh, the good news is they've learned from that you know now they bank with reserve banks now you know they have a huge portion of their capital in in treasuries and the reality is is both usdc and usdt kind of have a similar uh exposure to to the u.s system now like they both are kind of sitting at about 80 percent allocation uh of the reserves into treasuries and right and that that speaks to you know how profitable stablecoin businesses can be in a rising rate environment and and but it also speaks to the fact that you know you're really getting a very similar you know risk profile from exposure to the traditional financial system with either stablecoin and then it becomes well which one has a, a, a you know less of less opa uh, opacity which one has less regulatory risk and i think usdc wins that battle every single time so um yeah you know it was oversold when that happened but but nonetheless it wasn't it wasn't great 
Yeah, one sort of negative cloud, I agree with most of what Ryan said, but one sort of negative cloud piece to that is the regulatory environment we exist in seems sometimes to punish U.S. entities that try to adhere to regulations and allow international entities that do not to run wild and amok. So generally speaking, USDC is doing the best job of trying to be a regulated, audited, clearly accessible entity that doesn't actually necessarily mean in today's climate that it has lower regulatory risk. And I think that that cloud may be hanging over it. You're not, you're not necessarily rewarded for trying to do the right thing in today's crypto environment. Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but this is an imperfect market that we all operate in. And I think you have to acknowledge that that's a reality. Right, right. And, and just to give the, uh, the other side of the coin here, I guess, like UST, USDT and Tether did just release their first attestation report. Uh, and it was actually from BDO, the fifth largest accounting firm in the world. It was their Italian arm. Uh, I definitely can't speak to the the quality of that specific branch of the firm, but um, I did think that was pretty interesting. And they had a phenomenal quarter, which is interesting to say. I think you know, the final numbers were around a $2.4 billion surplus uh, and a $1.4 billion or so net gain over the quarter. And it was nice to see that step towards transparency. But uh, as you mentioned, I did think it was very interesting that during the USDC DPEG, USDT was the, the flock or the safe haven. Um, and that would imply that at the time, Tether had no exposure to the US banking system. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is definitely up in the air. Uh, but you know, you, you mentioned the, your predictions and they've been quite spot on. And one of them that's nailed was the, the idea that uh, we'd see like the great decoupling, if you will, or the separation or decorrelation of U.S. equities uh, from crypto. Can you kind of speak to you know why you thought that would occur? Happy to take that one. Uh, I think there's there's a few reasons. Like, you know, traditionally what drives the performance and the returns of crypto assets is a lot different than what, what drives the returns of equities, right? So with crypto assets, you have technological uh, innovation, you have kind of this regulatory environment. Um, and then you have, you know, this, this element overall of kind of being a, a high growth, early stage kind of technology play. And then, you know, traditional equities are largely driven by the, the macro environment. They, you know, they're, they're driven by uh, profit to shareholders, right? And, and uh, kind of their, their policy as a business. And so you have these two different means for measuring performance and, and how, how performance is driven. And so up until 2020, I think we saw like low correlations, maybe even uncorrelated, you know, at that point in time, like anything kind of down in the 0.25 range or lower and even went negative at some points, like is that definitely like an uncorrelated asset. And so in 2020, you had this crazy monetary policy kick in, right, with COVID and all risk assets kind of converged onto this environment of being completely driven by the, the, the fiscal policy, by the macro environment. And so we didn't really see correlations fall for the two years following COVID. Uh, and, and, you know, given that, you know, what Matt talked about earlier is like, we talk a lot with institutional investors about their allocation to to crypto being a, a, a one to 5% allocation, but also that it's uncorrelated with traditional equities. And so a lot of questions we got over the past two years were, were circling around this. It's supposed to be an uncorrelated asset. It's, you know, relatively highly correlated. You know, wh when is that going to change and why is that going to change? And as we thought about it, we thought, you know, yes, there's a lot of macro headwinds out there. Obviously, especially institutional investors are thinking a lot about the macro environment and about the interest rate environment. But, you know, it's it's become a bit like normalized and the velocity of interest rate changes and monetary policy changes has really slowed. And so as that velocity kind of slows down and people get more normalized to the yet yeah, to the new normal, 
uh, it made sense that we would see a decoupling of the correlation of equities and crypto. And uh, I think I've been pleasantly surprised that it's happened even faster than I had thought this year. And it's partly been driven uh, or accelerated by, you know, the banking crisis and uh, kind of circling back to what we were talking about with the DPEG of USDC in that moment. You know, it's people, people were wondering, what, where do we go to? You can't really, you can't uh, flee to other stable coins because you don't know what kind of risk there is, right? And so where do you flee to? You flee to like assets like Bitcoin, you flee to assets like Ethereum, uh, which, you know, have kind of less of a tether to the traditional uh, financial ecosystem, to the traditional markets. And so that, that you know, accelerated our thesis, I guess, that we're going to continue to see correlations fall. But yeah, it's really just a difference of of what drives the performance of these assets and the macro piece becoming less of a story uh, this year than it has in the past two years. And so we expect the correlations uh, to fall dramatically and have been happy, happy to see how that's happening. It helps with the, you know, traditional portfolio allocation when you, when you have that kind of decoupling of correlations. Well, Ryan, let me tell you, I'm all aboard that thesis because the less I need to worry about things like CPI and labor reports, the happier I am. So uh, I'm, I'm all in there. Uh, but let's, I kind of want to take things a little more on chain now. And, you know, Uniswap has been performing incredibly well in terms of pure volume, uh, pure volume, even relative to something like Coinbase. And I'm curious, do you think we've kind of hit this like inflection point where, you know, DEXs really start commanding more and more volume as we move forward? Yeah, it's been really interesting. The first quarter was really strong for DEXs. You know, part of that speaks to, uh, speaks to the fact that when everything was happening uh, with the with the regional banking crisis, with uh, the the depegging of USDC, right? I think most crypto traders kind of lost confidence or lost more confidence in some of that comfortability that maybe they've gained over the past couple of years with traditional, you know, CFI exchanges, and that you know obviously that eroded with the with the failure of Celsius and you know Voyager and uh, in Genesis and stuff last year. But I think you know people had kind of stomached that risk and said okay you know well at least we'll be safe with coinbase at least we'll be safe uh you know with some of the the, the bigger name uh you know us-based companies and then you see something like this happen with silicon valley bank and you see something um you know happening that has some kind of connection to coinbase right i think they froze usdc uh exchanges over that weekend and that just drove more and more users to using decentralized exchanges in that moment but also you know it was a trend we saw in january and february leading into that and so I do think we'll see more users use decentralized exchanges. The, the reality is, um, you know, some of that trading volume that's happening on Uniswap is actually flowing through from from Coinbase. Like they, you know, a lot of often route trades through Uniswap if they have deeper liquidity and can get better pricing, uh, you know, for, for their end users. And so I do think that there's some of this, you know, uh, you know, rising tides kind of lifts all all ships momentum that's happening. But um, yeah, don't I? You know, institutional investors, you know, the the less crypto savvy ones aren't using uh, Uniswap, right? They aren't using SushiSwap by any means, and so there is an element uh, where I, I'm not as confident that we'll see, you know, uh, immediate adoption and continued adoption of of decentralized exchanges. But I definitely won't be surprised if we get to the end of this year and in this next bull market, um, we're seeing consistently, you know, more of a challenge from Uniswap to Coinbase's uh, market share. Great perspective there. And I guess like the follow up on that would really be, do you think there's an idea of like a brand moat in crypto? You know, if we, we've seen Uniswap just start early and just take the lead and really never look back at, again, looking purely at, at volumes here. Um, but how, how do you think about brand modes in crypto? Uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a huge, you know, moat for first movers in crypto in a lot of instances, right? So 
Um, we saw Uniswap market share get challenged by SushiSwap temporarily when they forked it and when they, you know, airdropped their token. But the reality is, is especially with trading and especially, you know, with lending, like you're going to go to where the deepest liquidity is and where the most liquid assets and where the best pricing is. Like financial markets are all about liquidity and pricing when it comes down to it at the end of the day. And so, uh, and confidence, right? And so you do have this, uh, you do have this brand moat for first movers. Uh, they also get more attention and more headlines in traditional media, right? Which only helps to bolster uh, that their reputation among um, traditional investors, among venture capitalists, and that just kind of fuels the flywheel of of capital flowing into those ecosystems. Um, but you know, crypto is a very innovative space, and I do think that um, there's something to be said about newer protocols kind of testing the limits. And you know, it's it's hard to know what will ultimately happen. Uh, you know, if a new decentralized exchange or if a new trading platform comes out and just really kind of um, you know really comes and challenges Uniswap's, uh, you know, concentrated liquidity, but still the amount of liquidity that sits there, the amount of integrations they end up having with different, uh, different protocols. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, if you build an aggregator, most of the trades are probably still going to flow through Uniswap only helps to kind of, you know, increase their moat. So yeah, I do think that there's something to be said with, with brand moats, but it comes with a lot of risk. I mean, FTX had a huge brand moat, obviously, uh, when, when, uh, they, they, you know, famously collapsed. And so, uh, yeah, you know, you get the good and the bad, obviously. So I know you mentioned at the beginning of the call that you don't think there's, you know, it's kind of like picking up pennies in front of a steamroll, for example, like trying to get the ETH staking yield from the institutional lens. But I'm curious if you guys have uh, thought at all about LSTs in like the relation of a basket to kind of spread across the the risk of slashing or, or downtime uh, amongst the validators. Because I have seen some uh, index providers uh, create these LST baskets to kind of try and provide that yield with reduced risk to the institutional crowd. Is that something that you guys are thinking about at all? I mean, I know I definitely think about, uh, you know, spreading out your risk through liquid staking, right? And and especially when there's um, not, there's becoming more of a competition among fees across these different liquid staking providers, right? So it was it was easy in the early days, like, okay, well, 25% of a, of a fee for, for Coinbase's staking platform versus 10% on Lido, I'm going to go to Lido. But I think, you know, just like with trading venues, like we saw with traditional trading venues, you know, for the past 30, 40 years, like fees begin to converge as competition increases. And so I think the fees become a little bit less of a story going forward. And I do think that it's likely we, uh, we see people kind of taking advantage of similar feed liquid staking uh, platforms and the ability to kind of spread out that, yeah, that slashing risk, exactly that regulatory risk, that, um, you know, that smart contract risk really uh, as well across the different ecosystems. So you're getting the same APR more or less on any of these platforms. So it makes sense that you're going to want to spread that spread that risk out, uh, especially with some of them having no, you know, no minimum uh, staking requirements, right? Like you can just throw a little bit into Coinbase, you can throw a little bit into Lido. Um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. Awesome. And another thing that's kind of been a hot topic is is really just like the idea of returning protocol revenue to token holders and there's like a lot to unpack in just that question but i'm really curious how you guys think about this because to some degree you know these are all like you could think about the uh, a protocol or a dap as like a startup and in very very few if any instances there are no startups throwing dividends to shareholders so i'm curious about how you think about uh, like revenue distribution from a protocol to a token yeah, I love that. That's a great analogy. Um, one I haven't heard before. I, I think it's a really spot on one. 
The extension to that analogy is that the startups have to have a pathway to eventually make money. So they can be uh, pre-monetization, but there must be a way toward monetization, at least by the time they get to be, you know, a series C, series D venture backed company, once they're a little bit mature. So I think you need to uh, look at these tokens and decide if there is eventually a pathway to monetization or burn function or something of that, uh, that nature. And you're going to see two different levels of valuation. There will be projects for which there is no pathway to monetization. There'll still be value in those tokens because there is value in governance. Um, and there is value in, um, yeah, it'd be able to direct and influence the community and, and see where that protocol goes. And there could be good reasons to do that, but you're going to see a different valuation path for monetizable, uh, assets. So. All I would look for is, is there a potential down the road? Early on, like in an early stage company, you want to build uh, mindshare, audience, and robustly incentivize developers to, to be active in the space. But eventually, there needs to be a pathway to do real token economics, or else you're going to have marginally valuable protocols, which is fine. Those are great public goods, love them. Um, but from an investor perspective, you have to know which path. So you guys mentioned too earlier that Bitcoin, you know, is seeing increasing interest just in terms of being used as a DA layer when it comes to like BRC20s or, or ordinals slash inscriptions. So have you guys been hearing anything from institutions asking about this stuff? I'm sure they see something about higher transaction fees and they're like, well, what the hell is going on here? And you've got to try and explain this to them. Um, so yeah, I guess on top of that too, are is there more investor interest from the institutional crowd? outside of like, you know, other EVM compatible chains outside of Ethereum or like a Solana. And there's more interest around like a Stacks or some of the Bitcoin L2 landscape. Yeah. Ryan, you want to start? I'll jump in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I do think that we're getting a lot more questions about L2s in general and and a lot of focus on the fee landscape, right? Because now you get you get these headlines, especially, the, you know, this past week and over the weekend around uh, fees jumping to, you know, unaffordable levels. And so, uh, I think what's interesting about the L2 space on Bitcoin and, and particularly the growth now, uh, uh, I mean, a kind of explosion, I guess, of the BRC20 token environment is that we're going to see more and more L2s pop up as, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of BRC20 tokens, uh, you know, go live on Bitcoin. And that'll just help with accelerating innovation in the space. It'll also um, allow, you know, the early movers like Stacks to kind of have an advantage because they've already been working on this. They're not, you know, trying to just capture on some kind of hype. They've been building this now for a while. And so uh, I, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of attention placed on fees because fees, you know, can hinder adoption. They can hinder innovation, right? Entrepreneurs aren't going to go and develop uh, on top of protocols and top of L1s or, or you know, L2s on uh, Bitcoin if it's extremely expensive. But I do think that we can point to adoption of like the Lightning Network via uh, via Stripe, uh, Stripe and stuff, and so there there's some element uh, of of the of the like explosion of BRC20 tokens of the explosion of uh, these meme coins again that's going to have a lot of tailwinds for layer twos and for adoption. But I think we're in that we're kind of in that like part of the chasm where you have like this crazy congestion, you have this really uh, speculative use case. And so, you know, that will bring in more innovators that will bring in kind of innovation, but it, it definitely gets a lot of headlines right now. But yeah, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of, you know, questions about scaling and about, uh, you know, when will 
when will blockchains become affordable so that they're, you know, true use case of kind of banking the unbanked and creating cheaper, faster financial transactions really, um, you know, stay true in the long run. And, you know, I, I do think we're getting closer to that point, but um, there's there's still some improvements to be made. Even on Ethereum L2s, right, there's some improvement to be made with, with upcoming upgrades. So. Uh, this super divisive topic on crypto Twitter, it's a super divisive topic among Bitwise research as well. We have people on both sides of the spectrum here. I'm of the view that high fees are just strictly good. Uh, not for the long term, but strictly good. Because think back to the, like, the, the huge spike in fees in Ethereum in 2020 and 2021. What happened? We saw massive innovation in the layer two space, massive innovation from the ETH developer community to work to bring down those fees so that things could scale. You think we would have seen those things that we hadn't had fees spike to $20, $50, a transaction? Absolutely not. Why would anyone bother? If fees are going to be persistently low, you don't need these layer two solutions. I also think it's the case in Bitcoin specifically that at this point, the high fees do nothing to interrupt the fundamental use case of Bitcoin as a store of value. I'm going to hold Bitcoin for the next 50 years. What do I care what the fee? I don't care as long as the blockchain is secure. The only risk would be if you start to see sort of more innovation and change in the underlying protocol that puts at risk some of the security guarantees. But that's far afield, and I doubt we're going to get there. So I think it's just strictly good. Uh, I think we'll look back at this as sort of catalyzing a flourishing of the Bitcoin ecosystem and interesting experimentation and new ways to scale. Um, and uh, But I'm not, we don't have a united view on that at Bitwise. We definitely have uh, people who would laugh at me and tell me I'm an idiot. Yeah, now that one always, uh, I always kind of struggle to grapple with that one. I, what I will say is, you know, we saw Binance freeze uh, freeze transactions on Bitcoin, you know, twice over over the weekend. And so I think that just speaks to, you know, they're going to evolve their business to be able to use layer twos and, you know, scale their their fee, uh, fee network and um, scale their business up as we see more activity. And that just speaks to kind of that momentum that this congestion provides, right? Like you need congestions to build new rails and new lanes to drive more innovation so that, you know, you can kind of free up capacity and, and, and grow your business. And so it was, it's a really good example of, uh, of how that'll happen. And yeah, I, I do agree with Matt, you know, we saw that happen on the Ethereum ecosystem and look where we are, you know, two years forward from that point in time. And we have so much adoption on Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, uh, and other L2s. We saw other L1s pop up, right. To kind of deal with this higher throughput, lower, lower cost, uh, issue that we, that we needed to solve. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, exactly. Hi highly controversial, but I do see, uh, good points made on both sides. And I would just add one more thing. You asked from an institutional perspective, you know, they don't know what ordinals are. They don't know what's going on in this space. But one question they do ask almost at every meeting I have is what happens when we run out of Bitcoin? And from that, I know this is a, like a narrow narrative piece, but from that being able to point at the rise of transaction fees and be like, look, the market will solve this. We'll have a way to maintain this, this system, not just until 2140, but indefinitely because the market will solve it as there is more use. Look at is what is happening today. And so it, to me, it's a really beautiful proof point of the elegance of the sort of fee and base reward switch that's sort of thought of over a hundred year time frame. But we're seeing it work out sort of today. And uh, I think it's helpful for that perspective. Yeah, I feel like that's an interesting spin to put on it, honestly, because even just five months ago, the idea was, oh yeah, like, something will happen and fees will go up. But now it's like, okay, well, 
you know, meme coin speculation is not the long-term answer, but at least there's like a model that might be able to scale and you can like say, hey, here's a template for what could potentially work as like not just pointing to the air and being like over there, there's something there. But I do think it's interesting that these things are still happening um, on base layers. We do have like high throughput chains today. Solana could handle this without much of a blip, I would imagine. Um, and even Arbitrum and Optimism, sure, their fees would still go higher, um, but not to the point of, you know, 70, 80, $100 Uniswap transactions. Do you think that if you fast forward out even just 12 months, like if, there's, if this type of media and speculation is going, going on again, do you think that pushes to the L2s? And if so, why? Yeah, I, I definitely think it does. You know, I was surprised a little bit to see uh, to see all this activity like migrate and kind of consolidate onto Ethereum L1. I think the main reason that's happening is because that's just where a lot of liquidity ends up sit like when they launch these tokens on l1 liquidity goes there and again like traders are going to go where they get the best pricing but as more and more activity gets pushed onto l2s through events like this i think it's only natural that we're going to start seeing a lot more of this speculation taking place on different layer twos uh you know as, as it gets safer to bridge you know over time as people become more comfortable with that and you have more on ramps directly into l2s like coinbase and base i do think that we'll get to a point where uh where we see you know a lot of that the speculation and most of the new ideas happening on L2s, but L2s are still relatively young. I think a lot of people, um, you know, forget that that Arbitrum and Optimism only really went live within the past, you know, year or two. And so uh, it's they're still really, really young, especially, you know, relative to Ethereum mainnet. Uh, and so there's a whole level of kind of like, you know, education for developers and entrepreneurs to to, to explore, not not necessarily like the, the launchers of, you know, Pepe are, are you know, the, the entrepreneurs we need for the future of innovation but i just think there's you know it's easier to to do things on l1 today um and then that's where the liquidity goes and that's where traders go but i do think that we'll see the uh explosion of l2s especially after eip 4844 where we see the fees on l1 remain you know relatively the same but we see the fees on layer twos get significantly cheaper that unlocks new use cases like micropayments other types of uh you know much cheaper kind of innovation so and I would just add, like the first things that will migrate totally to L2s are things that are commodity priced, where fee is is the only defining factor, right? Or are non-financial activities, where the fees being de minimis is critical to existing. When you're speculating on something that, you know, I forget how many percent it went up, but a whole lot, uh, the fee becomes less important, right? The fee is most important when you're dealing with commodity assets where pricing is key non-financial applications. So that's where the growth will be. And then over time, as the users get there to Ryan's point, then we'll see these sort of speculative uh, ideas migrate into those users. But if you're coming up with a speculative, you know, entity, you got to go where the users are and the fee will be less important, uh, you know, because either the project will fail, we'll never hear about it, or it'll be massively successful and the fee will be de minimis versus the returns. And so I think that's the dynamic that's playing out, and that I'd expect that to happen for another another couple years until uh, uh, L2s are just how people access them. Yeah, strongly agree there. We are coming up on an hour here, and I, I want to be gener or cognizant of your guys' time, so we really appreciate you coming on. I can do a little shill for you guys. If you have relatives who aren't exactly comfortable self-custodying like crypto themselves, like Bitwise really is putting in the work to make that a lot easier and more accessible to the masses in a brokerage account. So highly recommend going to Bitwise, uh, their website, just type it in on Google and it'll be the first thing that pops up. But Ryan, Matt, do you want to share a little bit about yourselves, where to find you and uh, 
uh, we can call it until next time. Yeah, love it. Come over to bitwiseinvestments.com. You can sign up for our newsletter or find me on Twitter, Matt underscore Hogan. Uh, Hogan has a U in it, H-O-U-G-A-N. So uh, you'll have to misspell it that way to find me. Yeah, you know, I would just say all of our research is free as well. Like we we de- definitely do a lot of uh, research trying to help financial advisors and institutional investors make that that jump in their education. But we make all of that research free. Uh, we hope it's approachable. Yeah, go go check it out on our insights page on our website. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Rasterly Rock. It's R A S T E R L Y uh, Rock. It's a it's a uh, poorly thought out Game of Thrones reference, but uh, yeah, really appreciate being here, guys. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you both on. And see you again in another six months. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks for having us.